0: Welcome to the February 22nd edition of notes from Michael White, the podcast. I'm Peter Karen and joining me today is again is uh, Josh Wagman. Uh, We've uh, got a lot of topics on the go here today and uh, first of all, I think we want to just uh, start with a little bit of an update on uh, Michael White. Uh, as everybody knows, he is uh, living with ALS uh, and uh, due to that, his participation in the podcast and quite frankly in his newsletter is, is being reduced and uh, we wish him all the best and hope that uh, he can continue to live a uh, prosperous and valuable life and, uh, and he maintains his health for as long as possible. Uh, Josh and I are going to be continuing with the podcasts. Uh, We'll bring in Michael when he's uh, feeling up to it and we'll continue to try and bring content that Michael was delivering. Um, Michael made a note today in his uh, or this weekend in his newsletter uh, that he's going to be shifting away from a lot of the technical articles that he's been writing uh, to bring just more of the links and probably some personal uh, stories just so that he can get kind of his story out there a little bit more but we'll try and uh, per- fill in some of the blanks for uh, the technical content. Any thoughts Yeah, It's, Josh?
1: Uh, it's really uh, sad to hear. Uh, Michael I just want you to know you're definitely in our thoughts and prayers. Um, wishing you uh, as little pain as, as as humanly possible, and and as much uh, happiness as you can have at this time. Like, obviously, um, certain types of activities are are very difficult uh, given the battle with ALS, but uh, hopefully, you can find some peace, some relaxation, and, and just a way to in, enjoy life.
0: Thanks for that, Josh. I think, uh, you know, why don't we get on to uh, kind of the topics du jour, and uh, we'll start with the Mars Perseverance rover. Um, just some exciting space news, just with all of the, all of the rovers and Mars traffic that's just landing in, uh, in this kind of the window, uh, and the Perseverance landing was spectacular. I just saw the video today, and watching that sky crane in action was uh, just uh, spectacular. Uh, you had a couple of thoughts on that as well.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's really kind of cool how um, how far technology has come. You think even 15 years ago, you, you started seeing you know, different types of rover projects become uh, more of a reality, and it, it's really interesting. Uh, we were we were joking that they never really got a chance to test that sky crane. Uh, before actually going live and it it just reminded me of the phrase testing in production Um, but obviously they put in their time their effort and their research to make sure it went smoothly and and i don't think it could have gone any better
0: no, absolutely. It was. Uh, it was. If if you hadn't had a chance to watch the video, go over to the NASA.gov and uh, watch the Perseverance landing video. Even the parachute opening was quite spectacular. Apparently, uh, the parachute spells out uh, JPL in Morse code. If you uh, are paying attention, so tasty little tidbit there for uh, if you're playing the home game, you can go and see how they made that out. Um, Very neat. One I, of the I, things... I can't.
1: Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. One of the things I've, I've kind of enjoyed, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of as, as this mission goes on, is there's a cool aspect of it where I think some consumer electronics have actually uh, influenced what NASA's doing on this mission, and that's the, uh, the Ingenuity Mars helicopter. Like, this is technology we've seen for video capture. Uh, I know it's, it's popular in the YouTube crowd, uh, there's a number of YouTubers I follow that uh, participate in distance activities or distance uh, athletics that that leverage uh, drones to to be able to add to their to their content and it's really neat seeing that adapted uh, with specific use cases on a mission like this. Like it's come so far in just a few years.
0: Yeah, uh, if you if you think about the uh, you know. <laughs> 200 years ago, we were just inventing the steam engine. And, you know, 100 years ago, we were just learning to fly a couple hundred feet. And now we're learning to fly on another planet. I I think it's just astounding the amount of uh, ingenuity and whatnot that you have. And I, I mean, I even think about technology. What I have sitting at my desk dwarfs what I had in a data center. 15 years ago at a small oil and gas company i could probably run their entire operation five times over with what i have just sitting on my desk now and it just it it blows you away of the technology and that the imagination used to be limited by technology and now the imagination can be aided by technology i think it's really fascinating to watch things like this that happen and that are incredibly complex even just trying to get a Rocket to Mars, you know, takes an immense amount of calculations and an immense amount of luck. Quite frankly, that nothing goes wrong along the way, and then to have something land and then pop out a helicopter and be able to fly around—it's—it's it's astounding. So it's—it's—it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's really making me look forward to what the next. You know 20 years are going to bring in in terms of technology but also in in terms of exploration especially space exploration i think we're we're on the cusp of of probably many many more discoveries
1: well and and some of the the cool things about um like we talked last week about um the skylink and and having satellite communication and um and basically being able to uh to have that high speed, or Starlink, sorry, um, and to have that high speed communication go uh, through satellite, well, you're seeing a situation where a bunch of raw video and uh, like image data is being transferred back to the tune of almost like 4,500 images within just a couple of days. Considering how far that data is traveling, it's absolutely incredible. Like what they're able to communicate
0: it's like squeezing the you know a high dev video through a 14 144 14 baud modem from the 90s, right? It's uh, it's spectacular that we can even get that quality back to uh, back to Earth and in such a quick time. And a lot of that is, you know, they laid a lot of groundwork with the Mars uh, Observatory, you know, some rotating satellites that are in orbit around Mars that provide communications links too. So it's not just the rover, you know, waiting for it to come around on the right side of Mars during their Martian day to point towards the Earth. We, we actually have a satellite that can relay a lot of that now. So it's really increase the bandwidth so it's not just that we sent a rover there we've we've sent a lot of other stuff that laid the groundwork for this too so
1: no absolutely but the most exciting part for me is like i've always followed these type of uh, exploratory missions and but the data you get back is always kind of a little bit ho-hum at times because you can't quite make out what something is but with the, with the level of, of imagery they're sending back now and the type of technology they're lever- leveraging to be able to do this exploration, it, it's just incredible. And even, even people that haven't been involved before or haven't been all that interested before are now kind of being blown away by just the level of, of detail you can see. It, it almost brings it more into, uh, into focus and it makes it more real.
0: It's just, uh, it's, I think this is just the beginning of of the exploration and, you know, I'm waiting for the Rover to find Matt Damon too, right? He's probably sitting there somewhere. (laughs) I think they packed an extra razor for him and some better music. Too funny. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, uh something that's close to my heart. As, as a lot of you know, uh, I am a VMware Cloud Foundation specialist for VMware. So uh, we just came out, uh, VMware just came out with the VMware Cloud Foundation 4.2 and there's a lot of new stuff uh, buried inside this release that's quite exciting for a lot of uh, a lot of folks. And uh, uh, I'll touch on a couple of the highlights, just uh, the, the first one being uh, vSAN's HCI mesh Support and uh, if you don't know what HCI Message Mesh is, it's a disaggregated uh, storage uh, uh, capability so that you can share your vSAN data store with other clusters. So really exciting that that's now integrated right into Cloud Foundation. I think it will open up a lot of opportunities for. if you have a cluster A that has a lot of uh, storage available, but not a lot of compute, and then you have another uh, cluster inside that workload domain with uh, with lots of compute, but not a lot of storage, we can now kind of share that capability across. So that's that's quite exciting. And I think that's gonna uh, build out on the enterprise capabilities inside of vSAN as well. So. Um, You know the big the big thing from a a networking standpoint is uh, NSXT federation. So now you can have a single pane of glass across all of the NSX managers for each workload domain inside of there. Uh, It's going to bring a tremendous amount of global settings for policy. And uh, so you can have kind of uh, policies that get driven at a global level and get pushed down into each individual um, workload domain or even down down into each individual cluster. And you can still maintain control at a top level. So you can have your security department set up firewall rules and then have the administrators uh, pass on individual networking capabilities at the the workload domain or the cluster level. couple other really interesting things that I, I've seen in here are uh, the data persistence platforms. Another thing that a lot of people uh, haven't heard a lot about, but what it allows uh, uh, is for NSR or for vSAN to become a, Uh, management plane for things like min.io or or Kafka or, uh, you know, object storage from other vendors. So you can layer on some of these uh, software defined storage on top of a software defined storage, a little bit of inception happening. But what it really allows you to do is to have multiple disparate types of storage being all controlled and managed by the same management plane, which I think is going to be valuable as we move forward in this kind of this cloud era where you're going to have lots of different storage types for different problems. And uh, the data persistence platform is really laying the groundwork for, for kind of that object-based storage and policy-driven storage management, I think. You know Storage-based policy management is gonna be really key to making sure that an enterprise can control their data uh, and not have a proliferation of different policies wrapped across you know three or four or, or seven or eight or 12 different uh, platforms. So that, that's gonna be really exciting. Yeah, that One is
1: pretty, uh, pretty interesting development there. And obviously, the data persistence platform is, is extremely important as far as forward-looking technology goes and, and forward-looking functionality. Obviously, um, new cloud infrastructure, the movement in, in technology these days, the movement in the data center is, is moving to policy-based management of just about everything. So it's really important that that be addressed as part of that storage platform. And what I've, I've loved about VMware over the years is, is managing that storage and the storage integrations they've had that uh, with, with other storage platforms has allowed uh, some of that to happen. And it looks like uh, building that out within Cloud Foundation now is just kind of extending that to those newer technologies. But for existing deployments, I think that HCI mesh is extremely exciting. Um, because obviously you're going to have silos within a data center in a hybrid cloud environment where you do have multiple clusters and, and clus- different clusters are gonna consume different resources at different rates. So I think what's gonna happen here is a lot lot of optimization um, without requiring a significant amount of spend to get there. And so uh, good on VMware for bringing out that capability. We've, we've heard rumors about it for a while, but for now, to now have it hit the street and be able to leverage that um, as as a little more of a traditional storage platform being able to share out, uh, pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to see kind of where our engineering takes us over the next year or so with uh, that disaggregated uh, approach and uh, how that might impact uh, customers who are running vSAN today, but have uh, other clusters that wanna take advantage of that performance capability of that vSAN and, uh, and maybe leverage that capability across you know multiple uh, multiple storage uh, platforms as well. You know, bringing in things like MinIO or Kafka or uh, Cloudian, all of that sort of stuff will be interesting to see how how HCI mesh plus plus, 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 all of the other uh, little bits that we've added into vSAN are going to be uh, leveraged by customers going forward. I've had lots of interesting discussions already wrapped around that with uh, many Canadian customers. And I know uh, worldwide, there's been a lot of interest in that. So it'll be exciting.
1: So I've got a question for you regarding sure. HCI Mesh specifically. So
0: mm-hmm. when
1: when you're t- looking at um, VMware cloud on uh whatever uh aws azure uh maybe the cloud simple solution w- is this going to help customers kind of optimize what that footprint looks like in those cloud infrastructures as well
0: that today um probably not uh just because of the way that it's being delivered by our partners and by vmware cloud and aws by vmware uh we're we're, we've kind of got a cookie cutter approach i I think as we move forward in this disaggregated storage and i think you'll see more coming out uh wrapped around some of this is that we will see that approach being leveraged by our cloud vendors as well so uh not today but you know by all means you know if we think about what the roadmap roadmap looks like um, we we probably have a a good play in that regard as well excellent excellent the one last thing on 4.2 that that is uh, of some value for our existing customers is uh, really when we built VMware Cloud Foundation, we expected our customers to kind of subscribe to a certain methodology about updating and and uh, basically saying, you know, when 3.9.1 came out, you would just see it and the bundle would be there and you'd go through and it was a non-disruptive upgrade. So you just upgrade all the time. Well, in practice, you know, people don't like, uh, you know, constantly upgrading their environment, especially as they get larger in in size. So we came out with something called the skip level upgrade and, um, we, we had very prescribed skip level updates. Uh, with uh, 4.2, we we now can filter our, our upgrade bundles by the target release that you want to skip to. Uh, so before you, you would basically get, if you wanted to go from 3.10 to 3.10.4, you would have to get a specific skip level up bundle that would run. Now we're building a kind of an overall skip level bundle that would. Allow you to pick the release that you want to, and then it would basically show all the components that you need to upgrade, and it would take care of upgrading for you. So, uh, we're we're streamlining that process. We're making it uh, far more robust than maybe it was in the 3.x days. So, looking forward to seeing how that plays out in in. You know, in real life, with our customers as they go through the upgrade process, because obviously the the benefit of, of VMware Cloud Foundation is we try to make that upgrade process as easy as possible, and we've uh, we've taken a lot of the guesswork out of of you know, oh, what version plays well with what version. So hopefully, uh, this gives our customers more uh, more options in how they want to manage their environment.
1: Well, and and I think that's that's pretty critical to really make that upgrade process simple and ensure that like being, being a software or a platform company, it's important to have supportability around what customers are running what. It makes it much easier to roll out, to troubleshoot, to uh, have functional cohesion with all of the products you're trying to release that kind of work into one another and, and simplifying that upgrade process really reduces any hesitation in upgrading. So uh, again, probably a very solid move there. And, and I, I think you'll probably see early adoption of it be quite high because
0: of that. Excellent. Uh, why don't we uh, move on to our next topic? Uh, what do you want to talk about here, Josh? You, you put a few things into the show notes. So pick, pick one here and we'll, we'll run with it.
1: Yeah. So I was doing a little poking around the other day uh, during the weekend, actually. And stumbled across we were talking about uh last week how apple and um arm in in general is kind of revolutionizing the the processor and the chip market uh based on um cores for uh specific functions and so i came across an interesting article that uh in, Intel's getting really close to releasing their uh, 12th generation Alder Lake processors. And what it is, I know they did have uh, an i5 and I believe an i3 option already with kind of hybrid cores, but this is really their their dive head first into the world of hybrid processing. So they are going to have some uh, Golden Cove cores in there, which are your really high, um, uh, high frequency, heavy workload cores, as well as Gracemont cores, which is more traditionally in your Atom architecture. So really neat that they're, they're making the push to kind of catch up to where ARM has gone. They've, they've got a new process, so it's gonna be 10 nanometer now. Um, rumor has it, they're gonna support PCI-5 as well as DDR5 on this platform. And they're thinking maybe as early as Q2 2021. So we could see these very, very quickly. And to me, that's extremely exciting because obviously Intel has been the processor giant forever. And because of the work they've done in the past, we've seen innovation kind of snowball because of the fact that all of these other companies had to be competitive. And now we're seeing Intel kind of fall behind a little bit, especially when you're talking about efficient processing for um low power requirements in the mobile market and different things like that well you're now seeing that push with this 12th generation alder lake into that market where they're playing catch up and maybe because of their inclusion of pcie 5 and ddr5 support you might see them take that slight jump ahead again it's going to be really neat to see what what happens once they hit production
0: well I, the two things that really jumped out at me and, and uh, I had a look as well after I saw your show notes and uh, the early Geekbench results are, are actually, you know, an engineering sample has hit the Geekbench uh, database and uh, the Alder Lake S is uh, actually outperforming an I-9 9900K in single core performance by, you know, just a little bit, but in multi-core performance, it's 47,000 to 35,000. So it's really, uh, it's really Building out a tremendous uh, lead over what the existing kind of top-line processors are from from Intel. So it'll be interesting to see uh, a couple of points from from uh, you know from my side is you know wh- what does that do from a from a core count and what does that do from from uh, uh, a TDP you know that what's that power envelope that that is going to be key to a lot of uh, what I call um, data center applications where you're not necessarily in a fully powered data center, right? So I think there's going to be a lot of this trickle down, not just on the desktop or the laptop side, but also into your into your data center products as well. So I'm going to be really looking forward to seeing kind of what that looks like. Uh, and obviously, DDR5 and PCIe5 are going to be tremendous bumps. And essentially, I mean, uh, lo- looking at it, you know, when you're... There's going to be no slowdown for DDR5 or PCI5. You know, it's going to be running at the same frequency as the CPU. So that that's going to play into a lot of different things. And if I think about from a VMware perspective and what we're doing with uh, ESX, uh, you know, on microprocessors, on 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 chips, you know, maybe not just ESXi and ARM in some of those. Um, uh, you know, onboard NICs with embedded ESXi. Now I could see us actually plunking an Intel processor on there as well. So I think that's going to be interesting to watch what happens and interesting to see kind of how that plays out uh, down the road for, uh, for Intel uh, with Pat Gelsinger at the helm. I don't discount anything that Intel going to do. I think the leadership's going to be there and he's going to probably refine this product strategy and get it back on track. And uh, I think this is one of the, Best things I've seen at Intel in probably three or four years. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. And the one thing to note, just as we kind of cover off the topic, is they're also predicting that this is probably going to converge the mobile line again with the desktop line and result in basically there'll be a few different models of the processor, but. Um, what they're thinking is that you're probably going to see that collapse into basically one line of CPUs that, that is going to be used in both markets. So really what you're seeing with Mac is is desktop level performance on the mobile side, while Intel's making that push back and, and saying, you know what, we can provide that too. And so, yeah, driving Apple driving kind of uh, Intel to catch up and Intel's not waiting very long to take that step. So... We'll see what it looks like in production, but very exciting to see that coming down the road. Um, We got uh, another topic. You wanted to talk about uh, Mac users having to be aware of uh, of malware out in the wild.
0: Yeah, uh, I've been doing a little reading on the Silver Sparrow malware that's come out. and uh, It was interesting because it was the first malware that was both coded uh, with the M1 processor and also with the... um, with the Intel architecture, so it was targeting both, and it looks like uh, it's a pretty benign virus, but it does have uh, capabilities. So, something uh, to watch out if you're a Mac user is, uh, you know, malware is on the rise. More and more Mac users are out there, and and obviously, you know, virus writing tries to hit as many people as possible and uh, try and try and drive the profits for them in various ways. So. Just be on your toes and and know that that sort of behavior's out there. You know, practice safe computing, all those sorts of things. But it's interesting that you know the, the the new processor architecture with the M1 processors coming out is already being targeted. So I I, I would classify that as a a uh, factor of Apple's success with launching a new processor architecture that people are already targeting it. And I think a lot of that is. It's just, it's such a performance uptick. You know, maybe people don't notice that there's a virus anymore where they might have on an older, slower processor. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, Apple's already uh, come out uh, with uh, an enterprise um, signature for it and basically have stopped it from from working. But there's still, you know, 30,000 plus people that were infected by this. So it's out in the wild.
1: Yeah, it's wild. Like, I know I haven't had... Uh a MacBook probably now in about a year and a bit. And really at the time, uh, I, I know there was an increase in malware kind of happening within the last couple of years, but it was still safe enough that you, as long as you were careful, you didn't really have to do anything or, or run much of anything. And, and now I think you're right with the proliferation of, of malware and ransomware specifically, you're not, you're not immune on, on any platform at all anymore. So it's really important to make sure that uh, you've got your antivirus software and you've got that up to date.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Let's see what else we have here. One thing I I did see from our good friend Duncan Epping is that the vSAN Deep Dive 6.7U1 book is available right now for 4.99 US dollars on Amazon in the the ebook edition. Uh, For those of you who are running vSAN or thinking of running vSAN, I highly, highly recommend this book. It uh, brings you down into all the nitty gritty details about how the object storage system works, how management and troubleshooting and all of those little fun bits that you expect from a Duncan Epping book, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a it's a fabulous resource. I use it probably three or four times a week. Uh, I paid way more than $4.99 for it. So if you are in the market for vSAN or are or, or running it and you don't have this book, I would highly recommend you go out and uh, and pick up a copy. It's well worth your time.
1: Excellent. Yeah. And, and there's so many things like vSAN is pretty simple to set up and get running, but to if uh, it, Like anything else, there's gonna be some tips and tricks that help you turn it in to, like from a, uh, like a, maybe a VW bug into more of a Ferrari, right? Um, just being able to know exactly what configuration you need or, or what policies you should have in place for different types of storage requirements. Uh, the, the part as, as not necessarily a VMware insider that I struggled with to start with was, was storage policies. And so having some insight into that and and really understanding what those are for uh really helps make oh. sure your platform's number one secure and number two you're using it very efficiently so uh, good on duncan and, and definitely recommend reading that
0: yeah and you you touched on it you know uh, storage policies are the heart of ESAN, and if you can understand what each one of those toggles does and why you might want to use one of those in various circumstances uh, a good example is Stripes. right? Uh, it's a pretty simple concept, but in practice, why do you want to use Stripes? Where will it be beneficial? Where, where will it actually be harmful? Uh, knowing, knowing what it does and, and how it does it is, is critical for you to know, you know as you're applying these policies to various workloads, And you can change these dynamically, which is, which is the fun part, is so that you can try something out. And if it gets better, the great, there's a lot of trial and error, but uh, you can take that uh, trial and error out of it by understanding exactly what those levers and, and switches are doing under the hood. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a a great resource, highly encourage uh, anyone who wants uh, to go out and, and uh, pick that, pick that up. All right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about um, you know it, it's not every day that a, a you know a large aircraft part falls on your truck so maybe we should talk about uh, you know what happened with Boeing this week and uh, and you know as much as I see it as a, a a you know a failure I think it's actually a tremendous testament to the engineering that's gone on that uh, a plane can have an engine explode and then land safely at. At uh, with a full load of fuel and safely, right? So I read a great thread actually on a Boeing 777 um, pilot and they actually train in the simulator over and over and over again for these sorts of things. And the plane is actually built so that you can actually follow a checklist that gets presented on one of the heads up displays so that you can basically follow the checklist while you're flying the train plane and troubleshooting things but it's it's actually helping you along the way to make sure that a you know a if an engine does catch on fire here's how you put it out and here's how you actually compensate for the loss of that engine so you can make it back to an airport safely so You know, again, like like anything in IT, we build in, you know, no single point of failure. And I think that's the same thing that went into the engineering here. Uh, But it goes a step further than that by actually helping you troubleshoot along the way and actually get you back to the airport. And... uh, yeah. I don't know in this circumstance. I don't know if they landed it with a full, you know, hands-off approach. But theoretically, you could land a 777 on one end, on one engine, with a full autopilot. So, uh, I think that's a testament to the engineering that goes into these things. And and the 777s, you know, 15 to 20 years old. That platform isn't exactly a new plane. So, it, it's not like the technology is super new that's gone into this. So.
1: No, and I like the point you make how we can take things away from that being in technology and being in, in data center operations or um, like really any vertical within the technology kind of world in the fact that you've got to do your scenario planning. And clearly, Boeing had done scenario planning for the 777 that would allow them to land had they been um down an engine and and aeron- aerodynamically they've been designed to work that way. Um, obviously they put in hundreds and thousands of hours of testing to make sure that that is the case and that they can uh, be resilient in in the case that they have an engine failure, especially as catastrophically as they did. Like seeing how it blew up, they're they're lucky the wing stayed on. Um, But
0: um... When when you think of that large cowling blowing off the front of that engine and not damaging the wing, you know, obviously that's a testament to how well it's engineered that that it was able to survive that but number two, that the failure scenario for that engine was probably designed so that if it was going to do that, it would probably go outwards and away from the plane as opposed to back towards it so uh, again, you know, lots of things went wrong, but I think a lot of engineering went right that came into that, so.
1: Yeah, and there's obviously a fair amount of retrofitting in there too, especially with the heads-up display. I, I know you're starting to see different applications for that as well, um, especially in cars. Um, uh, it's it's really interesting to see, like obviously you get different things like augmented reality and, and uh, all of those good things that are kind of, almost part and parcel to a certain degree. Um, But uh, obviously you've had heads up display in certain applications, especially in the military for years, but now you're starting to see it more commercially used. And um, obviously something like that, especially when you're in a panic situation in a a plane and in the air, you want to be able to focus your eyes exactly where they should be focused. So it's really cool to see that uh, technology retrofit into something that, as you mentioned, has been around for a long time.
0: Well, let's uh, touch on one thing that I know is close to both of our hearts because we both have Intel NUCs in our in our environments at home. And uh, you know, I was reading something on virtually ghetto uh, by William Lamb this week, and uh, touching on you know, Intel NUCs just aren't for home labs anymore. Uh, we're seeing more and more prevalence of corporations showing interest in them for various things, and. Uh, when, when I think about you know how small and how low power they are, they're they're perfect for you know a, a you know if you think about what, where you might want to put something like that and make them more ruggedized, you know a you know a telco or an NV where you might want to have a network functions virtualized environment. Um, where you need something small, low power that's going to sit out on a cell tower somewhere. Um, you know, uh, something that is going to go uh, behind a monitor at a scanning station for retail. Uh, maybe a grocery chain that, that puts them to monitor freezer temperatures or, you know, I, the internet of things. There's just a tremendous amount of possibilities for these things because they are so low power and they're very, very quiet. So, you know, in a, you know, in an acoustic environment where you don't want to have a large fan whirring or, or things like that, it's a perfect example of that, so.
1: Well, and, and I'm a little late to the game getting into VMware on Nook, but um, even if it's as a, not, not as a virtual host, but even as an endpoint, I'm curious though to see how long it takes uh, VMware to officially put the knock uh, on the HCL. Um, I, I say that tongue in cheek, but um, William Lamb's blog and and the Virtually Ghetto site has helped me tremendously in getting my lab updated and and getting those NUCs into like lab production. But it, the use case for it, like. You can use it in so many different scenarios.
0: A, a, a good example of the corporate support for this is the the USB NIC fling that uh, William Lamb and and a couple other VMware employees put out there, so that people could use third party USB NICs to extend the functionality of those NICs. That's part of vSphere now. So you know it's a native driver now inside of vSphere for those USB things as 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 of. 7.0 update one, I believe. So when you think about, you know, the fact that we're taking some of these flings and taking some of the information from our, our you know, our, the V community, so to speak, and and uh, we're productizing it. So, you know, I think VMware is is reacting to the fact that the market is saying we like these things, right? Well, so. and I'm hopeful
1: that Intel will, will react as well. And, and to your point, make a ruggedized version, maybe make... It doesn't have to be insanely expensive or insanely different, but something where maybe they go through a, a little more rigorous testing before it hits the market and they they certify it more enterprise grade. Maybe it's a couple hundred bucks more for the base model or something like that, but it, it is something that can be extremely useful. When you look at the processing power, I've got a three node production lab cluster and a one node failover cluster in, in my environment, obviously. Being with uh, Veeam, I, I have to work on data protection scenarios, and, and so I, I need a production and a DR. The processing power I'm getting out of these tiny little boxes that are completely silent are actually as good, if not better in some cases, than dual Xeon processors with like 100 gigs of RAM or 96 gigs of RAM from just six to seven years ago. Oh, And it's, so it's, replacing it's, them is, is seamless.
0: Yeah, it's it, 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 and you know, for, from a home lab perspective, it's like mine. Mine is sitting less than two feet away from me right now, and no one would ever know, just because they're so quiet. And it doesn't kill my power bill every month too, which is always nice. Which you know, previous home labs I've had with, you know, rack servers and and full scale sans have made me not want to run them for very long, just because of. <laughs> power factors it was costing me a couple hundred bucks a month around a lab well yeah the wife doesn't like that i don't like it uh, and you want to make sure you're getting value out of that investment too and i think that's something else you know coming down combined with this new alder lake chipset i think you're just seeing the the tip of the iceberg with what uh that platform can can do in such a small footprint so it'll and, be exciting to see what kind of goes on with that in the future
1: yeah, and especially like you, you look at modern SSD and NVMe as well. It's so much more reliable than it used to be. And if you were going to use this in a production scenario, you'd obviously go more to an enterprise level, spend a, spend a little more money on the storage. But where you had to have that RAID 10, RAID 6 before to be able to make uh, spinning disk resilient, you don't necessarily need to do that as much with, with something with solid state. It's just, it's much more stable. It's much faster, obviously. And so these these production use cases are becoming more and more of a reality. And and now being a believer in in the NUC ecosystem, for home lab use, I'll I'll never go back. And in fact, if I were to open my own business, I probably would build it out on a NUC platform myself.
0: You know, I think you'll see a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> small businesses who, you know, don't want to invest in a huge footprint of IT, but maybe don't want to go to the cloud quite yet, or, or don't have a use case to go to the cloud because they just need something small, you know, they need file and print services or something along those lines, you could do a vSAN cluster with Nux and and be very very happy with the performance you know for small scale stuff so there's going to be lots of interesting use cases for these going forward and i'm really looking forward to seeing what uh not just the market does but what individual customers and and, um and people do with the platform so be quick now
1: all we need is for guys like you and william inside at vmware to push them for that hcl
0: certification Uh, it, it won't be me i don't have that kind of influence that would be a william lamb thing so yeah um i think we can uh, probably have time for just one more topic uh anything that you want to add into anything we've talked about or do you want me to pick one here just a couple of news?
1: little musings that i kind of uh found looking for uh, interesting tidbits today and that's uh if you were looking at getting something in the GeForce RTX 3060 line, apparently uh, competition is, is forcing the pricing up on that extremely quickly. Um, so you're starting to see the price points of those come up uh, significantly from where they were predicted to release at. So uh, could be some interesting time there. I, I don't have a use case for, for a 3000 series um, graphics card at this point. I typically use eGPUs, but um, we'll be patient enough to see where that goes before and looking at the new Mac line, hopefully they support multiple monitors out of the box, but uh, we'll see where that goes.
0: I think uh, one of the interesting things with the 3060 that they've recognized that crypto miners are, are buying these things up and jacking the prices and they've actually crippled the crypto mining in the, the 3060 in, in the latest versions of the 3060. So they did something in firmware to actually basically say, this isn't the card for you. Uh, so I think we'll see that uh, supply freeing up more for um, the, you know what I would call the uh, mainstream graphic card users as opposed to someone who's buying 10 of them and shrunking them all in and uh, trying to get Ethereum or, or Bitcoin out of them. So I think NVIDIA is taking a pragmatic approach to that. I don't think they want to alienate those crypto miners. Uh, they're building some dedicated crypto mining cards that are optimized for it. Uh, but I think you're seeing that they're, they, they want to also focus on the people who are uh, buying their products that are very enthusiastic about their products as well from a gaming perspective. So uh, like you, I don't have a need for a 3060 at the moment. I'm not doing too much in terms of video or or, uh, or video gaming on my PC. So, uh, but I I know lots of people who do and, and who can't get their hands on a 3090, 3080, 3070, 3060. Right? So, you know, the, the chip shortages are, are there. I think there's just such a hot demand for it. and and cryptocurrency drives a lot of that too. So it'll be interesting to see how they uh, play that cat and mouse game with them over the next uh, year or so to see what comes out of that and and see if that was a good business move from Nvidia's perspective.
1: Well, and did you hear in the news, uh, obviously it's not liquid, so it's just a number on paper, but um, Elon Musk or Tesla has made close to a billion dollars if not slightly more on their investment into Bitcoin um in, in just uh, like a few short days uh, yep. maybe a little over a week um it's just incredible how volatile that market is and and how well and frankly markets in general we've seen a lot of craziness happen in the stock market as well <laughs> The whole
0: GameStop and, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think diamond hands was a, uh, was a phrase that many people had heard. <laughs> I think everybody's heard it now. So it's, uh, it's definitely uh, interesting to watch. I'm not I, just for full value. I'm not invested in Bitcoin or GameStop. I, I, I basically uh, do not carry any position into those, but uh, we, we can leave it to guys like John Nicholson to explain that market uh, <laughs> ad, ad nauseum.
1: Yeah, nor do I. I'm a little risk averse to uh, to be uh, getting into into that level of speculation. But um, good on you if you if you have invested and and made some some money and gotten it out. That that's the key, right? You can invest it, to make it, money, but it, it's all about getting out, to, getting the money out of it before something happens. So
0: exactly, and with the volatility, you know, I always say, you know, take your profit when you can, uh, and don't feel bad if it goes up after you took your profit, because you at least made a profit, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's about the, setting the, realistic goals.
0: <laughs> the one last thing that I saw today that I'm, I'm quite frankly probably more excited about than I should be is um, Blizzard has announced that after 20 years since its initial release, Diablo 2 is being remastered and delivered in 4K 144 hertz. (laughs) So Diablo 2 Resurrected is what it's going to be called, and it's going to be available on PCs and for the first time ever on Xbox Series X, Xbox One, PS5, PS4, and the Nintendo Switch. So if you have any of the popular gaming platforms and you haven't played Diablo 2, it brings me back to before I had kids and I loved playing it. So I can't wait to actually uh, get, get a hold of that game and, and play it again.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a little nostalgic, but it'll be uh, pretty, pretty fun to see that, especially with the high detail graphics and, and what they can do with that. So very yeah. neat.
0: Yeah, so uh, with that, I think we can sign off. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode, episode five of, uh, of the uh, Notes from Michael White podcast. And we look forward to bringing you uh, all of the latest virtualization news and other tech tidbits along the way. I'd like to thank Josh uh, for his participation again. And we look forward to uh, talking to you guys next week. With that, we'll sign off. And uh, we hope you all have a great week.
1: Have a great week, everybody. Thanks again.